You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, we are in the book of Mark together. We've been walking through this for over a year together. We're in chapter 10, moving closer to chapter 11. If you have a look at the whole gospel of Mark, you see that uh, in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to be walking into the triumphal entry of Christ in Jerusalem, and we're going to be focusing on uh, the last days of his life right up until Easter. It's exciting to be thinking about that together. Uh, last week, we, we looked at chapter 10, and we looked at uh, verses 13 to 31. And as we studied that, we discovered the qualifications that are necessary for becoming a citizen of of heaven, and they weren't the qualifications that we normally would think of, right? It's not the requirements or the qualifications that we would see in this world. The qualifications for the kingdom of God is not our strength, it's not our goodness, it's not our self-sufficiency, but rather helpless dependency, spiritual bankruptcy, self-denial, and faith in God's ability. Last week, we were reminded that, like children, we need everything. And because we were also like the rich men, we bring nothing. And like the disciples, we forsake anything. Why? Because Jesus is everything. Now, as we studied this last week, one thing that really stood out to me and, and, and struck me last week was how Jesus described the process of entrance into the kingdom of God. How in many ways he said last week, it's hard. In fact, he said it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. And this seems to go against much of our Christian culture today. But Jesus said last week in, in Mark 10, verses 23 to 27, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says more generally in verse 24, he said, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And so just thinking about that difficultness, it's been rolling around in my head all week. According to Jesus, salvation is not easy. In fact, salvation, according to Jesus, is hard. And he even said, it's impossible for man. Now, versions of the gospel being sold across our world right now sometimes don't mention these things. They don't mention that salvation is difficult. Preachers in pulpits, evangelists on the TV, on the radio, and podcasts, and the internet, and even our own witness to our friends, we often short-sell the gospel as a mere option to our life. It's something on the side, and sometimes we cheapen grace, and it actually cheapens the hard work of Christ to save us. We minimize the buy-in. We reduce salvation to a prayer that was said or an aisle that was walked. We talk a lot about forgiveness, but not a lot about repentance. We talk a lot about what we get, but not so much about the sacrifice Friends, it wasn't easy to get saved. It was hard. It was so hard that Jesus, that God, had to send his son. And today, Jesus is going to continue to teach us that not only is our coming to him hard, but following him is hard. Jesus is going to direct the path of his disciples here towards Jerusalem today. And what we're going to see is that he's preparing them for the hardness and the difficulty that is to come when we follow Jesus. Now, many of us know this common saying, and I want you to finish it for me when I, I'm going to save the first half. When the going gets tough, the, the tough get going. When it comes to discipleship, when the following gets hard, the faithful get fearless, get humble, and get sacrificial. That's what we're going to see today. And so as we go to God's word, let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, we do, we do acknowledge that we come to you in, in complete weakness. We come to you void of, of any goodness of our own. Lord, we come to you with no power today. We come to you with our sin. We come to you with 
our fallenness. And you know this. And that's why you sent Christ. That's why you gave us your spirit. That's why you have given us this word that is open before us, how you have written it to men so that we can be changed by it, so that you can open our hearts, you can, you can remove uh, the heart of stone, and you can give us hearts of flesh so that we can believe and we can follow in your ways as you put your spirit in us and as you put your word in us. Lord, I come to you today knowing that I am weak. I need you right now. We come to you as those who are nothing apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. And so today, would you open our eyes? Would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see? Would you give us feet to walk this hard path ahead of us? Because we can't do it, and we can't do it on our own. We need you, Lord. And so speak to us today. Move me aside and preach to your people. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So Mark chapter 10, verse 32 and on. And they were going on the road, they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. We see Jesus here revealing for the third time that walking with him is extremely hard. We see in verses 32 to 34 that the faithful will follow fearlessly. And so we ask ourselves the question, are we walking in fear or are we walking in faith? And so let's take a close look at those first few verses here. We see that Jesus is on the go, right? They were on the road, again, showing us that the gospel is not stagnant. The gospel is always advancing and the disciples are following we see that discipleship is always about following Jesus Christ. And in this first section, we get a clearer picture of where Jesus is going, where he's taking them. If you remember back to uh, uh, verse 1 of, of this chapter last week, we knew that Jesus was heading towards the region of Judea. But now in verse 32, Mark tells us more precisely that Jesus is taking them to Jerusalem. He's taking them to the holy city, the city of David, this very center of the faith. Now, the text also says here, and we can often overlook this, but it says that they're going up to Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem. When you look at verse 46, if you look down to verse 46, you see that right now they're somewhere in the region of Jericho, which is about... 30 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem in the Jordan Valley. We have a map here for you to have a look. About 30 kilometers northwest of Jerusalem in the valley of the Jordan is where they are right now. But if you look at the topography here, you see where Jericho is right there, and then you see where Jerusalem is, you see mountains. You see it's a lot higher Jerusalem is 3,500 feet higher than the elevation they are right now in Jericho. Just for your reference, there's a, there's a, a building, the tallest building in the United, or not in the United States, in the world, is the Burj Khalifa in the United Arab Emirates. That building is 2,700 feet high. And so you'd have to add another 800 feet on top of that to show the difference of height between Jericho and Jerusalem which means that for every kilometer that these guys are going to travel on foot, Jesus and his disciples are going to have to go up 120 feet. They're going up to Jerusalem. They're ascending all the way, and it wasn't going to be easy. So Jesus is, is a leader who not only teaches, but he leads the way. He's in front, and the way is going to be hard. It's uphill all the way to Jerusalem. 
And the text says here that his disciples are amazed. They're amazed. Jesus already told them twice before this that that he is going to go and be handed over and he's going to have to die and rise from the grave. This is the third time that he's telling, the third and final time that he's telling them this. And as he's leading out front, uphill, in boldness towards his death, his disciples are astounded. They're astounded at his courage, astounded at his determination. But the text also says that there are others along the way. But these people are not amazed. These people are afraid. They were afraid. Now, the text doesn't really tell us who these people are. We always know that there are those who are following Jesus and his disciples. We also know that this is the time of Passover. Jews from all over the known world, the diaspora, are coming coming towards Jerusalem to worship. But whoever they are, they are with them, and they are afraid. Now, it may be those general disciples who are just following, who don't have a whole picture of who Jesus is. Maybe they believe that he is a political leader coming to save them from Rome, and he's heading to Jerusalem to start a revolt. And if they're going to be with them, it's probably not going to go well for them. That could be why they're afraid. Or maybe they've heard about Jesus' predictions that he has to go there to die and to rise again, and they know that being associated with Jesus is not going to be good for them. Others may be coming after them as well. So we see here a contrast. We see the disciples, that they are amazed, and we see this group of others who are following, and they are afraid. Two people, but they keep going. Jesus then takes his disciples aside, these amazed disciples, and for a third time he reveals more information about his passion, more information about his purpose for going to Jerusalem. It says he takes the twelve again and he began to tell them what was to happen to them. Verse 33, saying, see, behold, look, we are going up to Jerusalem. You knew we were going to Judea, now you know we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. So up to this point, this is the most information Jesus has given about his final days, What he's revealing is the reality of Jerusalem is going to be horrible. It's going to be extremely hard for Jesus. It's going to be hard for his disciples as his days are numbered with the disciples and as his plan is to build his church through the disciples, he's giving them a clearer picture that it's going to be hard, that what's about to take place is going to be extremely hard. That these chief priests and the scribes, Christ's very own people from the Jews, the ones who know the scriptures, the ones who know the prophecies about him, they're going to be the ones who are going to put him on trial. They're going to be the ones who are going to condemn him to death. And then what they're going to do is they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Roman Empire who is ruling over Jerusalem, and they're going to mock him. And they're going to spit on him. And they're going to flog him. And then ultimately, they're going to kill him. Jesus is going to experience horrific persecution and suffering in the days ahead. And so we see this grueling ascent towards Jerusalem. It's going to be extremely hard. And he wants his disciples to have a clear Picture a clear understanding of what is about to take place, that in that they can trust him. That his predictions are true, that not only is he going to suffer and he's going to die, but he's going to rise from the grave. He's going to rise from the dead. So what we're seeing here is discipleship is about following Christ and following him wherever he goes, no matter how hard it gets. And it's going to be hard. So we need to ask ourselves, we're Christ's disciples today. 
Are we walking in faith or are we walking in fear? You know, the clearer picture that we have of the gospel, the more emboldened our feet are to follow. As we see this same bold willingness of Jesus Christ to charge uphill towards his death, this should only fuel our hearts all the more to follow him in that boldness. Because Jesus never promised an easy way. He just recently talked to his disciples about taking up their crosses and following him. That was back in chapter 8. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is following him into suffering, following him into persecution, following him even to the point of death. In chapter 9, he taught about the seriousness of sin, that when we see things that are tempting us, we need to kill it. We need to amputate it out of our life. That's not easy. That's hard. And then last week in chapter 10, he mentioned in verse 30 that we will receive the blessing of a church family to walk through persecution with. It's going to be hard. We need each other. Again, this is going against the modern message of the age uh, that you just come to Jesus and everything gets better. That Jesus came to make you happier. That we can be blessed. That you can have your best life now. That yes, life is hard, but everything is going to be easier in Jesus. That's the message being sold today. You know, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verses, 7, or verses 13 to 14, Jesus says that we need to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter that one are many. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Friends, we're not promised a quiet, calm Christian life. In many respects, our lives get harder as we follow Jesus. He said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Matthew, he promises his disciples, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you're going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So we're going to be hated. We're going to be persecuted. The way is not easy. The way is hard. So the question is not, will it get hard? The question is, when will it get hard? The question is, will I be amazed enough at the, bowling, of the bold willingness of my Savior to fuel my heart for faithful following? No matter what comes my way, will I be fearful or will I be fearless? You know, as you study the lives of the apostles, each one suffered persecution, right? Trials, each one suffered much, and most were martyred for the faith, but it didn't stop them. We also see this continuing on in the church for thousands of years that, that Christians are persecuted. Christians are tortured for the name of Jesus Christ. In the year 110 A.D., Ignatius, he was the pastor of the church of Antioch. Well, he was arrested for, for preaching Christ and he was sent to Rome and as he, he went, he was, he was facing a tortuous death. He was going to be fed to the lions. And as he was going, he wrote to the church of Rome. And he said, now I begin as a disciple. I care for nothing of visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. 
Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me, be it so, only that may I win Christ. What fearless faithfulness. You know, this is, this is quite foreign to us today in the West. This isn't a daily reality for us living here in Calgary, Alberta. It, it's just so safe here. We're not experiencing anything close to this. And yet far too often we fail just to engage our coworkers with the gospel. That may be too risky for my job. We don't talk to believers on the train or on the bus because it might cause a scene. Kids and our teenagers, we don't talk about our faith in our school because we might look weird. We don't walk across the street to our neighbor because we don't want to be seen as those crazy Christians. We don't engage our families because they may get hostile with us. And on and on and on it goes. But Jesus has boldly walked ahead of us. And he has faced the most horrible persecution so that we could have life. And so we need to ask ourselves, will we walk in faith or are we going to walk in fear? We need to walk fearlessly. When the following gets hard, the faithful walk fearlessly. And also we're going to see that they walk humbly. So we see a lot more clarity here with what's about to happen with Jesus. The disciples are continuing with him, but they still have a long way to go. A long way to go to Jerusalem, but also a long way to go in their hearts. They have a lot to learn. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. See, G James and John were a part of Christ's inner circle, remember? They were, with, they were with Jesus, they were with Peter, up on the mountaintop. They saw Jesus transfigure in glory before they, their eyes, and they began to think that they were special. Special before the others. But as Jesus is beginning to reveal this crucial information, how near he is to persecution and death, we see these two brothers aren't thinking about Jerusalem and what's going to happen. They're thinking about themselves. They're thinking about prestige. They're thinking about position. They're jockeying for a place next to God. It seems that they have selective hearing here. They know that Jesus is, is always teaching about this coming kingdom. And so what they're doing is they want to make sure that they're in the right seat when they get there. They want to make sure that they have the best seats in the house of this new kingdom. Especially as they said last week, they said, they said, look, we have left everything to follow you. Now, what do we get out of this deal? And so they asked Jesus to give them whatever they ask. If you look at this parallel account in Matthew's gospel you'll see that there's somebody else behind this as well. You'll see that there is a meddling mother, a mother behind their request. In Matthew's Gospel, we even see that she approaches Jesus herself and she tries to manipulate the situation for her boys. She says in Matthew 20, verse 21, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. You have to love those kinds of parents who manipulate and meddle. They're going to do anything to make sure their kids get on that team, that their kids get the best part, that they sit in the best seats. We've even seen this on the news recently as, as 
celebrities are trying to get their children into the best schools, whatever lengths are necessary to lie and to get them in there. We see this proud mother wanting to see her boys get a proper reward for their sacrifice. Surely, Jesus, you must owe my son something for everything that they've walked away from. I don't know if you feel that way sometimes. Do you feel God owes you something? That you've walked away from friends and and family and things for him, and now God owes me something. Friends, God doesn't owe us anything. This family was more concerned with what they are to receive than what they can give. One commentator says, they are quick to claim the benefits of God's kingdom, but slow to hear the cost of participating in it. And so Jesus, of course, knowing their hearts, knowing humanity, and having loads of patience and grace here, he entertains their request. And he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. The place of honor in Jewish culture is to sit next to the king, next to the leader. And notice they say here, in your glory. But even as they say that, you can almost hear the evil whisper of their own glory in the boldness of their hearts and even asking this question. And so Jesus responds in verse 38. He says, you do not know what you are asking. You see, their request is revealing their true intent. It's revealing their heart. And so Jesus responds, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus is using using the cup and, and the wine to speak of much more than what these men are thinking. But in their foolishness and in their selfish, how do they answer? They say, we are able. They don't understand that the the cup and the baptism that Jesus is speaking about is symbolic of two things. The cup is symbolic of God's wrath that will be poured upon Jesus in the last days. You know, in in the Old Testament The cup often spoke of blessing, but more often than that, it spoke of God's judgment. Psalm 11.6, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75.8, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You look at the prophets Isaiah, you look at Jeremiah, you look at Habakkuk. They all speak to this as well. And then with baptism, baptism is speaking of death and judgment. In the Greek language at that time, the word baptizo was used by the culture to speak of being overwhelmed by a disaster. Jesus even said in Luke 12, 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. When you're thinking of baptism, think of the flood, think of Noah, think of the wickedness of the world at that time, and how the world needed to be judged by death for their sin. But Jesus came to take the cup of God's wrath for our sin, and to take the baptism of judgment upon his shoulders for us through his death. Friends, only one could take it. Only one could do this. And it is this long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, this suffering servant that we see here in the scriptures today, the one who Isaiah prophesied about 400 years before this in, in in Isaiah 50, in 52, in 53. It's all looking forward to the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 50, verse 7, it really connects to this text today. Speaking about the suffering servant, therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. 
And Luke references this as he writes his gospel in chapter 9, verse 51. He says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, going up to Jerusalem, going up to the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Set his face like flint. He's going to be taken up on the cross for our sins, for the sins of the world. And only one could do it. Only the perfect lamb sacrifice could do it. They're coming to celebrate Passover. And the lamb is walking up the hill to Jerusalem among them. Some are afraid and some are amazed. Only Jesus could do this. And only Jesus has done this. We need to ask ourselves, do we believe this? Are we banking everything on Jesus Christ? Or are we selectively hearing like James and John? What do I get out of this thing? How do I get rewarded for leaving my family and my friends and my things for following Jesus Christ? James and John and their mother don't understand what they're asking. Because the, fo- the call to follow Jesus is a call to die. It's a call to die to ourselves. It's a call to die to self and it's a call to seek his glory. And it's not a call to seek our own glory. Their question was foolish. It was ill-informed. It was selfish. It was sinful. But they needed to learn, right? They needed to see the reality of following Jesus, that yes, it will be a blessing, but there's also going to be a cost. That the way is going to be hard for them. And the beauty behind all of this is, is that we know that after Jesus dies and he rises from the grave and he ascends to heaven and he sends his spirit, we see the apostles walking, continuing to walk in the hardness of their faith and thinking of James and John. You know, Jesus says, said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You know, following Christ is, is suffering for him. And we see that James and John learn this lesson later in their life, right? They get it. In Acts 12, 1 to 2, it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Then, his, then, then we have John, his brother. He was the longest to live of all the apostles. But his days were also terrible. Tradition says he was arrested and he was thrown into a boiling vat of oil. But the Lord spared him. He was also sent by the emperor Domitian to the island of Patmos, which was basically the Alcatraz of the day. It was a barren, isolated place. It was terrible. So there's no doubt that he suffered greatly. So we see James and John, these two foolish brothers, now living out exactly what Jesus was saying. They suffered for him. They had their cup. They had their baptism to experience as well. But their foolish request at this time revealed they didn't quite get it yet. They didn't understand that it's not about their glory, it's about Christ's glory. Jesus said in verse 40, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. So we see a glimpse into the Trinity here. The Son always submits to the will of the Father. And reward in heaven is not based on selfish ambition, selfish request, or selfish desire. It's based on God's sovereign will. It's it's not mine to grant, Jesus says. That's the business of the Father. So in all of this, as we see James and John, we see their foolishness, but then we see the reality later that they learn the lesson. We ask ourselves, are we seeking our own glory or are we seeking God's glory? When the following gets hard, are we going to walk humbly? Just think about it. When, just think about life. 
when life gets hard, when life hits you square in the face, are those the times when you're the most courageous? Are those the times when you're the most humble? Are those the times when you are most bold in your faith? Are those the times when you trust and believe in Jesus Christ all the more? Are those the times when you're less concerned about yourself? It's often during the hardest times that we forget to look at Jesus. And we can't get our eyes off ourselves. It's those times that we forget, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Friends, we're, we're prone to walking in fear. And it's often in the hardest trials, like I said, that we cannot get our eyes off of ourselves. We can't get our eyes off our situation, our condition, even how our feelings lie to us. And all we want to do is to be set free, to be set free from our suffering, to receive a, ble a blessing rather than a curse. We want some sort of confidence that, that things are going to get better, that there's going to be some kind of blessing at the end of the day that we will receive the right hand or the left hand of Jesus, but we forget that it's not about a seat of privilege. It's not about who we get to sit next to in the kingdom. It's not about our own glory. It's about his glory. And so in the power of the Spirit, we need to fight against our natural desires, our own desires for our own glory. They are so natural to us. And they're really revealed when life gets hard, right? You know? When life gets hard, we're going to be tempted to want something for our sacrifice, for what we have given up. But as we're informed by God's word, we can walk humbly. As the Spirit is at work in us, we can reject our desire for our own glory and begin to walk in His glory. You know, I love that our, our men and our women here are studying uh, James. The men are studying James, and the women are studying First Peter. Now, many of us have already started our study in that together, and in the first chapter, you can see how these are even connected together. James 1, 2-4 he writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's when you meet trials, not if. It's going to be hard. And then First Peter for our ladies in verses 6 to 7. In this you rejoice, though, now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about him. And so in the hardness, we need to get our eyes off of ourselves. We need to get our eyes on Christ and get it on the promises of the gospel and walk in Christ's humility through trials because it's about his praise, it's about his glory, and it's not about ours. So when the following gets hard, the faithful follow fearlessly, the faithful follow humbly, and then verses 41 to 45, the faithful serve sacrificially. Verse 41, and when the 10 heard it, so this is obviously the other 10 of the 12, when they hear about James and John's foolish, bold request to be sitting at the right hand of Jesus, they began to be indignant at James and John. We see here pride. We see pride and how it disrupts. Pride and jockeying for position always produces jealousy and division in the kingdom of God. We've already studied this, that there's no room for pride on the road of humility. 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great one exercise 
authority over them. Jesus is saying, you guys are acting just like the world. You guys are acting just like the world that is oppressing you right now. The same oppression that they hate. At the time of Jesus and his disciples, Rome was in power over Jerusalem, over all of Israel. And and Rome lorded that power over them. And Rome placed its leaders and military all around everything. Even when you look at Herod's temple in the corner, there's a place for the Roman soldiers to oversee what's going on at the temple. Their authority was forced upon the people. An example of that is in their own currency that they forced upon the people. If you look behind me, there's a picture of a denarius. The coin that they would use to pay their taxes and goods. And this coin had the face of the Roman emperor on it at that time, Tiberius. And on the backside was his mother Livia. And the emperor Tiberius was to be regarded as one to be worshipped. In fact, it even said right on there, it said in Greek, he who deserves adoration. They were forcing their authority and their oppression upon them. And Jesus is saying to his disciples right here, you guys are acting just like the Romans. You're acting just like the world as they struggle for rank, as they struggle for position. They're doing the very thing that they despise of the Roman Empire. They're acting like the world. But Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. Friends, the church doesn't rule like the world. The church that these guys are going to start does not rule like the world. The church rules as servants. Jesus says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. We all need to hear this. I need to hear this. So many pastors and leaders of churches need to hear this. It's not about power. It's not about authority. It's not about you getting your way. Don't be like the world. Be like Christ. Lead like a servant. We all need to hear this. It's not, it's not about our glory. It's not about being great. It's about humility. And it's about humility that is being revealed through action, through service. Verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So the word slave is the Greek word doulos. That word is even lower than the word servant. Servant is diakonos. Doulos, slave, is even lower than that. It was inferior to being a servant. Jesus is saying we need to be the lowest of the low. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the doulos, the lowest of the low. And this would have been absurd in the ears of the disciples. You see, these disciples would have looked down on slaves at that time. They were the lowest. They were lower than servants. But Jesus here compares himself to that slave. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Christian life is not about getting It's not about ruling. It's not about puffing our chests up. A true Christian would never look at somebody as lower than them. A true disciple of Jesus looks at the lowly and and sees the lowly and sees how I am just like you. We're the same. Just think about somebody coming into our church that doesn't fit the part very different from us, would we look down on them? A true disciple looks at anybody coming to that door and sees that they are a sinner just like me, and they need the grace of Jesus Christ. 
This is how Jesus approached the kingdom of God. That yes, he was king, but he was a slave. He says to the disciples, don't be like the world. Be like me. Be like a slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He served so humbly, so sacrificially, as he lived that perfect sinless life for us. As, as he healed and loved people so compassionately, as he went to the lowest people of society. But even more than all of that, as he boldly and willingly walked up that hill towards Jerusalem, as he is about to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes who hated him, who belittled him, and how they were going to condemn him to death. Why? Because of their pride and their position. And then how they're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles, the Romans. And how the Romans were the ones who were to dole out justice. And in doing so, they mocked him. And they spit on him. And they flogged him. And then they nail him to a cross and they hang him. And they kill him. This God-man who was perfectly sinless, sinless and righteous, hanging with criminals, receiving the cup of wrath that we should be receiving, going to a baptism of death for sinners like you and me, that death that you and I deserve, that's what a slave looks like. That's your God. And so as we think about what Christ has done, as he has served us so perfectly, so humbly, so sacrificially, how do we respond? How should we respond when the way gets hard? We respond in faith. We turn away from our sin. We turn away from our lying hearts and we believe in him. We trust in his promises. We trust in his perfect blood sacrifice, that lamb, that final perfect lamb. Just think about these people walking up to Jerusalem. They're going to be sacrificing all kinds of animals, but the final perfect pure sacrifice is walking that road. He's going to be nailed to a cross once for all. Believe in him. Trust in his promises. Trust in that perfect, bold sacrifice, that victorious resurrection over sin and death, and then start serving sacrificially. That's the life of a disciple, and it's not for gain. It's not for favor. It's not for blessing. It's not for power. Simply respond by faith. Respond to the love and the grace that we see in Jesus Christ. He who is the highest, who made himself the lowest. When it gets hard, are you self-serving or are you self-sacrificing? Are you in this for yourself? Or are you in this for him? How about for others? Are you in this for each other here this morning? You know, in many cases, the church has become consumeristic. Churches have become like new cars with all kinds of options, you know, depending on your model. We have all these different kinds of programs that we're offering, all these services that we can provide, all the entertaining possibilities, what style of worship. My church has this, your church has that. I'm looking for a church with this for my family. I'm looking for this kind of a church to meet the needs of my life. And it needs to fit into my life, right? I want to choose what kind of commitment I have. Ministries are good. Buildings are good. Buildings are necessary. Styles are different. We're called to minister to one another. Yes, but is our approach to the kingdom of God more about us than it is him? Is it more about serving self rather than it is sacrificing for him? 
Are we believers merely for what we can receive? Are we here for our own gain? Maybe you desire a worldly leader or you desire some kind of prestige and honor by being a part of the church. Remember the words of Jesus, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's not about us. It's about him. And it's about giving yourself away for him, loving the one who first loved you like a slave. The one who laid his life down for you, who ransomed you, who purchased you by his blood. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. That's your God. So the call to follow Christ up the hill is a call to sacrifice. It's a call for us to pick up our crosses and follow him. It's a call to die, to die to ourselves. A call to serve, to be a slave of Christ, and to be a servant of each other. No matter what comes our way, no matter how hard it is, it's going to be hard. If we really believe it, if we really live it, this is going to be hard. And so as we close, ask yourself, is my life for Christ easy or is it hard? Was my life easier before I got saved? Am I experiencing any pushback from the world right now in my life? Is my witness producing any persecution? Am I suffering for the gospel? Am I sacrificing my time, my talent, my treasure for him? Or am I approaching his kingdom like a Lord? I want to be served. I want to be honored. I want to consume. Ask yourself, is the reason that I'm not experiencing any pushback from the world is because I'm not pressing into the path that's ahead of me? Am I just keeping Jesus to myself? Am I hoarding my faith? Is the reason that we're not experiencing persecution as a church right now because we're not really walking up that hard hill with Jesus Christ? Are we not putting on our crosses? Are we not boldly shining that light wherever we go? When we do get it, when we understand that, when we give everything up and when we give ourselves away, it's going to be hard. You're guaranteed it's going to be hard. But the faithful will follow fearlessly. The faithful will walk humbly. And the faithful will serve Christ and his church sacrificially. We're not going to do it perfectly. But as we're motivated by grace, as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, who fills us, who empowers us, as we're informed by the words of Christ, and, and that light shines in our path, we can follow fearlessly. We can walk humbly. We can walk sacrificially. And that's God's goodwill for us, for his glory. Amen. Let's pray.